Our scripture reading for this morning is coming from Genesis 12, Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 through 20. So if you got your Bible there in front of you, open it up, and we'll be reading from Genesis 12, 10 through 20. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a, beauti- a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw the woman was very beautiful, and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house, and for her sake he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called to Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh, and Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. This is the word of the Lord. Looking forward to getting back into Genesis with you today, into this strange passage. Uh, As you heard it read by David, you're probably thinking, where are we going to go with this passage? I think there's a lot here for us to glean today from it, as there is in every verse and every word of the Bible, really, as we know it's inspired uh, by God. Well, we this summer, thanks to COVID, we were unable to watch the 2020 Olympics from Tokyo due to their cancellation. One of the events that I love watching is the 100-meter sprint. It's incredible to see how those runners come up to the starting block. They, they crouch down into this compact position, almost ready like a bullet to be fired out from the barrel of a gun. And then the sound of the starter pistol goes off, and, and boom, they're out of the blocks with such an incredibly powerful and fast start. But every once in a while... Someone jumps the gun. They start too early, breaking the rules, and there's an infraction, and and there's a second gun, and all the runners pull up, a quick transition to a stop because of the false start. What started so fantastically and beautifully is quickly halted by a false start and the lack of, of fidelity in the race. Well, today... We look at Abram again, who who started so well last week. Remember, he was asked to leave the known for the unknown, to to set out for a promised land that he had no idea where it was, for a promised nation uh, to be a blessing for the world. And he came out of the starting block with such incredible faith. And our point last week was true faith believes God at his word and responds in active obedience. 
But as quick as Abram started trusting God and, and, and acting upon God's bare word alone, today we see him falter with a false start. In this strange story this morning, we see a quick transition for Abram from immense faith to a false start. A faith lapse, you could even call it. However, what's so encouraging for us this morning is that even though Abram jeopardizes the promises and blessings of God, not to mention his wife, with this, his strange actions, God intervenes to protect and deliver his, his couple, this couple, and ultimately his people. I encourage you, if you have your outline handy, to take some notes and fill in today. It was in our all-church email. You got it. and Have your Bible open to Genesis 12, whether you got it on your smartphone, tablet, or a book copy in your lap. We're going to look this morning at three stages of this deliverance of Sarai and Abram. So here's our first one. This first stage of deliverance is this. There is a temptation for us, as we'll see with Abram, to escape danger with deception. So here, this morning, in our story, we have Abram, the man of faith, facing his first trial after expressing the overwhelming faith that he had. And it's true that when one places their faith in Jesus, many times, quickly on the heels of that faith, comes a trial, or, or, or famine, literally, that we see in Abram's life. Many times that is the case for a new believer. We might think, well, life is just going to be great. I've trusted Christ, and it is great. But many times that's when the real walk of faith begins. And Abram knows that his life and his wife's life are important. Remember the promises. The snake crusher would come from Abram's seed. All the nations would be blessed. And he must have thought as, as this famine, as this trial came, he must have thought, I've got to protect my family. I've got to deliver us so that the seed could be protected. Well, as Moses writes this, and the people read it, they can't help but see a microcosm, a, a mini exodus in this story of Abraham's delivery too. Thereby, as the Israelites would have read it and heard it from Moses, they would have seen the deliverance of Abram, and the Israelites would have taken comfort as they rehearsed their history from their forefather and what God had already done for Abram and Sarai. But back to Abram, you know, his intention as we open this story and see him going down to Egypt was to sojourn there as the famine hit. Kind of like a lot of us uh, sojourned when we left town because of the smoke. A lot of us did that. I was sitting on Knightsbridge Road out to I-5 in bumper-to-bumper traffic. I know most of us did it. We were going somewhere else to sojourn because of a trial or a discomfort in our own land. As Abram went down to Egypt to do the same. Of course, we were going to return when the, the smoke cleared. And Abram and Sarai would go down to Egypt to visit to get food or, or until the famine passed, and then they'd return to the promised land. But what's curiously absent as Abram surveys what looks like an insurmountable problem, what's curiously absent? God. God is absent. Moses in Genesis 12 doesn't give us any details of Abram asking God what to do. We don't have him seeking God's will or, or praying to God 
It's as if Abram has forgotten God in this moment. It's as if uh, at the first sign of trouble, he begins to scheme, to make his own plans. Okay, what can I do? What can I do to stay out of harm's way? What can I do to escape death? This promise has been made to me of the blessings to all the world. What can I do to preserve myself? He schemes. And we see, as the story goes on, he lays out a plan. Look at verses 11 through 13 with me again this morning. When he was about to enter Egypt to go sojourn and get food, for the, uh, for the, uh, excuse me, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you're a woman, beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you're my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, that my life, he's saying about himself, may be spared for your sake. You hear that and you're thinking, what? What did you just read? Abram said this to his wife, Sarai, on the way to this strange land where they knew no one and had no support structure or refrigerator or grocery store they could go to. Here was the challenge. Sarai was an extraordinary beauty. And this wasn't just a, you know, a husband's starry-eyed love calling her beautiful. We know that because as soon as they enter Egypt, Pharaoh's princes do what? They praise her to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, you've got to see her. You won't believe this beauty. You have to see her. So we know that something about Sarai is uniquely attractive because the Egyptians think so too. So Abram reminds Sarai of the agreement they actually made all the way back in Ur. Genesis 20, 13, it says this very thing. There was a plan that they made, Abram and Sarai, when he said this. Take a listen to these words. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. Now, Abram does not intend what happens to happen to Sarai. He doesn't intend for her to be taken. It's more than likely what was going on was this was the plan that they decided back in Ur before they left their homeland to follow God's promises to the promised land. This was the plan that they would plan that would buy them some time to escape. The custom at that time would have been for Abram to be responsible for his sister if there was no father or husband. And anyone that would have wanted to marry his sister, therefore, would have to negotiate with Abram, which would take time allowing them to figure out a plan of escape. But what Abraham couldn't foresee is that he would be dealing with someone who had no need to negotiate, Pharaoh. So what does he do? He deceives. It was kind of subtle, a deception, it was really a half-truth. How? Sarai was actually Abram's half-sister and wife. Different time, different customs, clearly. Genesis 20.12 says, when he was speaking another time, we'll get to in the future, he says, besides, she is indeed my sister. Abraham does the same thing we'll see in Genesis 20. She is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. 
So it's kind of true. It's half true, but clearly not true in a deception. She's his half-sister and his wife. There's a couple takeaways for us here as we talk through this temptation to escape danger with deception. As Abram was, we too are tempted at times to escape danger, control situations, preserve ourselves by putting forward deceptions. little twisting of the truth here. Or keeping certain details back there to portray ourselves in a better light as Abram did. To keep ourselves out of hot water to shift blame onto someone else or, or to escape danger or preserve reputation as Abram did. It, it's falling back into human sinful nature, the way of the world, or you might call it the way from below as Scripture does, the, the, the fleshly way to seek power or control in situations. What Abram does here is not the way from above, is not wisdom from God, And we're going to see a repeat of this theme throughout the book of Genesis. The repeat theme of deception. And more than likely, every time we see this deception in the book of Genesis, this is what causes a trouble for God's people that God has to come into in divine sovereignty and deliver His people. Because of deception. Some failure or shortcoming, or fear, or weakness in the, individu- in the individual we're going to see causes them to twist the truth as Abram did here. Rather than trust God, Abram fears. Derek Kidner said in his commentary on this passage that Abram makes the sudden transition from the plane of faith to the plane of fear here rather than trust god in this moment or pray to god or seek his 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 wisdom and his will or tell the truth in this moment abraham puts the whole blessing of god in danger in harm's way because of his fear i mean think about it what happens if sarai dies what good would all the wealth be that pharaoh does give him if Sarai, his wife, is taken into Pharaoh's harem, what good would there be in that? We cannot in the church or in our personal lives think that we can use half-truths without damaging or jeopardizing God's blessing upon us as we see it right here with Abram. We just can't. God is the God of truth. And deception is evil. That's the heart of the tension in the book of Genesis. Here's a couple other uh, uh, examples. Let's go back down there, Tony. Isaac says to Jacob when he's blind, is that he says, you, Esau. He thinks it's Esau, and Jacob says, uh, he deceives his dad. Yes, it's me, Esau, dad, when it was Jacob. Or how about Joseph and his brothers? Where's your brother, Joseph? As the father asks the brothers, the 11 brothers, and his brothers respond, he's dead. Look at this bloody robe. An animal ate him. Deception. How are we different when we rely on our own scheming and deception rather than God's 
promises. And this is our sub-point in, in this first stage of the deliverance. Abraham was living like a functional atheist in this moment, in, in a reflexively self-sufficient reliance. Let's put that into our own terms. There's some kind of large, big, uh, giant phrases there. Let's put it in our own terms. Of course, Abraham wasn't a literal atheist. He'd heard God. He'd seen from God. Uh, he had been given promises and he had displayed immense faith by leaving his home. But here, with his deception and his scheming, his trickery, he's living as if God doesn't exist in this moment. A functional atheist. He's coming out of the starting blocks, so to speak, pulling up lame with a blown hamstring. A functional atheist. And when you and I choose to live as if God doesn't exist, what happens? We fall into this reflexive, human nature, old man or woman, self-reliance. It's reflexive. I know God is a God of truth, but you know, in this instance, I better take matters into my own hands. I better come up with a plan. This is Abram here. This is us here. And when we make decisions this way, there are times when we even think we even think we're promoting God's work as we take this route of reflexive self-reliance. And we even think we're promoting God's work, but guess what? It always backfires when we go that way. So let's look at stage two of deliverance because it backfires in a big way for Abram in a way he never could have probably even imagined. It's the second stage of our deliverance. Our human nature schemes, they backfire, and when they do, they actually invite more jeopardy into our life. As I said, Abraham doesn't even realize yet that he's making a huge mistake. See, we think, if I can just figure out what to say here, if I can just get past this one hurdle, if I can just wiggle my way a little bit, even if it's a half-truth, I mean, at least it'll get me out of this moment. We do this with our spouses, our bosses, our friends, our co-workers, our fellow churchgoers. The temptation is real. If Abram, the man of faith par excellence, struggled with this out of the starting block, who are you and I? Why would we be any different? And isn't this the lie we've believed from the garden when the serpent said, Adam, Eve, take matters into your own hands, even if it means going against what God told you. A, a little scheming here. I, I know God said that, but a little scheming there, and you just wait and see what's going to come. When in fact, evil always begets more evil, and sin always begets more sin. And our human schemes backfire and they invite more danger in and jeopardy in our lives, in the church, and in our communities, in our families, and friendships, and marriages. James is really clear on this, how sin begets sin. James 1, 14 and 15 say, but each person's tempted. Each person now, not just the, a, a select few, each person's tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire... When it's conceived, give birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. James gives us this graphic description of sin that leads to sin, of evil that leads to evil, and actually to, to a type of death, he says. Our schemes never 
deliver us. And we actually end up scheming ourselves into self-deception. And things end uh, end up turning out worse than they were in the beginning. And James says, lead to death. And in Abram's case, in Genesis 12, apart from divine deliverance, it might have ended in death for both of them. So what happened in this really weird, strange story? Sarai is taken into Pharaoh's harem where, apart from divine deliverance, she probably would have remained the rest of her days and died uh, an Egyptian, really. I mean, think about it for a minute. We're, We're focusing on Abram here today, but think about her experience. How horrific to be taken from your your husband in a strange land into Pharaoh's harem, not knowing what was to happen. I I mean, I just can't imagine her experience there. And this was the plan that they had had from from the beginning of in Ur when they left their homeland. And the irony is Abram is given all kinds of wealth from Pharaoh as Pharaoh is pleased with Sarai. Maybe it was a a bride price, a negotiation, a dowry. Look at verse 16 in your text. And for her sake, that's Sarai, he, that's Pharaoh, dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep and oxen and male donkeys and male servants and female servants and female donkeys and camels. It's really a description there to let us know that uh, Abram was wealthy. Female donkeys and camels were what the, the, the wealthy had. Uh, it's like the, the, they were like the BMW, Lexus, whatever car of their day. Uh, that's what's going on there. It's, it's, main, it's letting us see Abram got rich really quick here. But what good is all this stuff if he loses his wife? And in fact, what's really interesting, you might think, well, why he got rich out of this? Maybe that's, you know, hey, God blessed him in it. In fact, the wealth, though, becomes a stumbling block going forward. As we'll see next week in the story of Lot and Abram's separation. What was at the center of that separation? All this wealth they had. And most commentators think that a woman named Hagar came as a gift, one of those female servants from Pharaoh too. And if you know Genesis, you know some trouble is going to be brewing there in that story. And here in our story, again, what we see in Genesis, Alan Ross points out here too. He says that the intimacy between the man and the woman is broken here too. And someone has taken what God has put as off limits. Again, boundaries that God has set up are being crossed. From the tree in the garden, all the way here to the giving away of his wife. And when we try to scheme, when we try to plan, when we try to make a a way of escape for ourselves by transgressing God's boundaries, whatever they may be, it can't go well. Except apart from God's rescue. The third stage of this deliverance today. Let's look at it. Divine deliverance does come by God and it protects His Word, His promises, and His people. And this is what God does in this story. It would take divine deliverance to save Abram and his wife, Sarai. Not like Abram was going to go all Liam Neeson on them from the movie Taken, you know, getting back what he'd lost. That was not going to happen here with Abram. Abram would have absolutely died in the face of Pharaoh, his army, and his men trying to save his wife. But God, the text says. But God, 
it says in verse uh, 17 there. But the Lord, God sovereignly set the wheels in motion and like He would hundreds of years later with plagues again in Exodus, or in, uh, in, in uh, Egypt, in the book of Exodus, with plagues He would save His people. He sends a plague on Pharaoh's house. Probably what happens here is that the entire house probably gets some sort of boils, which is another plague in Exodus as well. Uh, Pharaoh's house probably gets boils here. Everyone except probably for Sarai comes down with these boils. And they're thinking, wait a minute. Why isn't this woman getting sick? All of the rest of us are. Why isn't she getting sick? And God begins this deliverance. But God doesn't. It's a good reminder for us here. God doesn't always choose to deliver his people, does he? I mean, you have stories of times you have prayed in your life to be delivered from something or for somebody else to be delivered, and God answers no. There are times in the Bible when God doesn't deliver his people, and he allows them to remain in a place of trial and suffering. Happened with the Israelites, happened with the Apostle Paul. I, I mean, hey, it happened with Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we don't know why sometimes in his sovereign plan he chooses to deliver, and sometimes he doesn't. But here we know that only divine deliverance would free them. And in this instance, it was to protect his word, his word to Abram, to protect his promises that he gave to Abram and Sarai that this new people through whom the Messiah would come would come from this family. And Abram ends up in this story he is the guilty party. He ends up getting rebuked by Pharaoh, chastised by Pharaoh. You know what they do? They actually expel him. They actually kick him out of Egypt. In the original Hebrew language, it's, it's put in such a blunt way. It's really only four words. It literally says in the Hebrew language, here, wife, take, go. <laughs> and he's escorted out of the land. Abram is without even saying a word in the end of this story. Silent. Kind of like Jonah was at the end of the book of Jonah. He never gets the final word. Abram knows. It's an embarrassing exit. He comes up lame out of the starting block. But God, God has made a covenant with his people. He's got the promises and his word that he's given to this man that the world would be blessed through this schemer, Abram, this deceiver, Abram. This was God's plan. And so God would protect him even in spite of, of Abram's sin. It doesn't excuse it by any means. And it doesn't in our life as well. Abram started with a, a stellar faith. He had his head down, coming out of the starting block, on his way to the, the promised land, trusting God at his bare word. But he wasn't expecting famine. He wasn't expecting a trial. But isn't this often God's way on the running track of faith in our own life? Trials are what reveal what is inside of us. Sometimes it's remaining sin. When the heat of life gets turned up and things start to get shaken up, do you know what happens? Things that are inside of us get revealed. And Abram here, what happened? Abram forgot God. 
He forgot God's amazing power. He forgot God's great promises. And he fell back into reflexive self-reliance. He tried to scheme and deceive his way out of trouble. You know, there was a moment in Jesus' life where he too in his humanity was probably tempted, actually he was tempted, to scheme. Tempted to take matters into his human hands to solve his dilemma. Jesus, our Savior. You remember the story probably. The Spirit led Jesus out into the wilderness where he fasted for 40 days. He was hungry too, like Abram. And he was tested by the devil. Satan met Jesus in the wilderness and he was weak and hungry and probably feeling temptation. He said, oh, Jesus, I know you're hungry. Turn these stones to bread. Take matters into your own hand, Jesus. Second temptation, he said, Jesus, see the temple, you know it. Go to the top of the temple. Throw yourself off. You know, you know God will protect you from being injured. And do you know if you do that? And a temple's crowded. You know if you do that, you throw yourself off and God delivers you. Do you know how many followers you'll get from that when they see it? And the third time he said, you know, Jesus, you see all this land here. It's my kingdom. You bow down and worship me, Satan said. I'll give you everything. Satan offered him shortcuts to the promises of God. Kind of as he did back in the garden. Kind of as, as Abram felt his own temptation. Forget your heavenly father. Take matters into your own hands. You know, scheme a little. Did God really say that? But guess what? Where Abraham false started at his first trial? Jesus never did. Jesus never false started. Not even once. He never pulled up lame. He never faltered in his faith. He did not look to his own answers to solve his dilemmas and temptations. He looked to his father, as Abraham should have, as we should too. Do you know how he responded to Satan? Here was his three responses. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Promises. You shall not put the Lord God to the test. Trust. And finally, be God Satan. You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only you shall serve truth. Yes, Abram does become the great man of faith, and God allowed this trial and used it in his life to mature him and brought blessing to the world through Abraham. But that blessing was Christ. Jesus was the one who would exercise the perfect faith. As we said last week, he's like Abram, but he's better. Jesus was the one who truly left his home behind for a land unknown. Jesus was the one who, who went out into the void, left the familiar surroundings of heaven, the unknown surroundings of earth. He was the one who held truly his position and power loosely while on earth. Kind of like Abram's call to redeem, rescue, create a new nation of people, the kingdom of God. And then finally, to take you and I to the ultimate promised land. And as he did it, his faith never wavered. Jesus' trials matured him. They produced in him a perseverance. 
so that he became mature and lacked nothing, Scripture says. In those moments, he ended up realizing what true trust and deliverance in God is like, like Paul did in 2 Corinthians when he says, I was at the point of death, but I was taken there so I'd rely on God, not myself. And Jesus did all of this for you and me so we too can follow his footsteps of faith. But when your faith falters and you have a false start at times, you can know this, that Christ's faith is your faith. That Christ's perfect life is your perfect life. We are hidden in him. We have no need to hide behind lies, deceit, or half-truths as Abram did. We're hidden in him. God acts as he did for Abram with us too because he's made a covenant too with us in Jesus Christ, the new covenant. We're living in precarious times. I've watched these past, even these past couple months and even these past couple weeks, I've seen it in us, our people, in myself too, that the pressure cooker of trials has turned up in 2020 more than it has in a long time for many of us. We are being asked to live by faith in unique ways, to go out as sojourners like Abram, to hold things loosely like Abram, and to speak the name of Christ as Abram spoke of God everywhere he went. And many of you are wondering, will God deliver me? Will God come through? In you, Abram, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. A promise is yours. He may not deliver you from the immediate trial. He may, but he will ultimately deliver us. Because as Jesus came out of the starting block with faith and never false started, he finished the race well. And guess what? He ran your race. In fact, he carried you the whole way and is carrying you now. So trust him in the valley. Trust him in trials. Trust him that he will deliver you even if it looks like you need to come up with your own scheme, your own plan, your own half-truth. No, follow the way of truth and he will deliver us. Let's pray. Christ Almighty, we come to you as the author and finisher and perfecter of our faith. You came out of the starting block in a strange way too, in a manger in a stable. And yet you lived those 30-some years on earth Perfect faith. Tempted, yes, but never sinning in your faith or lack of. Christ, we look to you today as the ultimate deliverer. We look to you today as the one who will ultimately deliver us and bring up to us to the promised land, or rather bring the promised land to us with a new heaven and earth. And so God, in the meantime, give us faith to live as sojourners, those who wander in exile, home but yet not home in this earth, Lord Jesus. And let us, wherever we go as we saw Abram last week set up altars of worship and speak publicly your name. May those in our community, those in our families look at our life and go, who are you following? Who are you trusting? And when they do, may we say, it's our Savior, the author, the finisher of the race in our faith, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray today. God bless us. Amen. David.